Welcome to Green Tea, sustainable stories from Bowdoin campus and beyond. A production of the Bowdoin Sustainability Office with your hosts, Marie Caspard and Diego Velasquez. Telling stories about sustainability from the perspective of faculty, staff, students, and Brunswick community members. Today we have the privilege of speaking with Gary Lawless, self-described hippie weirdo, poet, book publisher, and owner of Gulf of Maine Books right on Main Street here in downtown Brunswick. His work has been published alongside the works of many other great poets and has been translated into many languages and is still going. Thanks to Gary for joining us today. We asked Gary to start with a poem, so here it is. All right, so this is an old poem, but it's it's the one that has been published the most around the world. It's been published in at least 11 languages. When the animals come to us asking for our help, will we know what they are saying? When the plants speak to us in their delicate, beautiful language, will we be able to answer them? When the planet herself sings to us in our dreams, will we be able to wake ourselves and act? So it's a little poem, but it's a, it's questioning, questioning. Um, and actually, I wrote that in the 70s. <laughs> You guys may not, you weren't even born in yeah, the 70s. Yeah, so that poem is older than you. Yeah. <laughs> but old poems don't go out of date necessarily. I mean, it still gets keeps getting used. They keep getting requests for permission to reprint it or to translate it. So it's, it's it seems, to, and it, it's, the planet isn't any less dire threat than it was when I wrote that. I think mm-hmm. things have gotten worse, if yeah. anything. Things have gotten worse. So it's still, and it, you know, it, it questions whether, People are going to sit back and let things happen, or if they're actually going to stand up and speak and take a stand and do something, you know, yeah. and act, <laughs> well, which is more than just writing a poem. I'm, my actions aren't necessarily that useful um, as a poet, but uh, you know, here I am with a bookstore and poetry, and just trying to find ways to put. We like to think of books as tools, and we put tools in people's hands to make them mm-hmm. not only think but act as well um so we're kind of when we first opened our bookstore's been open 40 years now in brunswick this is our 40th year when we first opened we were the hippie weirdo bookstore (laughs) but we were also um when we first opened we we were also part of the earth first network and i was the sort of new england contact person for the earth first movement and we we were a lot of stuff was happening um well, in those early years, we were trying to close a nuclear power plant here in Maine, which has since closed, mm-hmm. and we were also trying to stop clear-cutting by the paper companies. We weren't very successful at doing that, but there was a lot of organizing around nuclear power and a lot of organizing around clear-cutting and, and also uh, herbicide and pesticide sprays that the paper companies were doing on a mass scale uh, in northern Maine and, of course, most of the major rivers start up there and and bring that stuff all down here too so you know it was um so the store was we also were trying we we were thinking of books as tools and and getting helping people educate themselves about issues by reading about things Mm -hmm. you know and then occasionally we would have guest speakers uh and we started having for 39 years we had a booth at common ground fair every year um thinking about books as tools you know and as resources and not not just as a 
pleasurable experience, which is fine too, just to read a book for pleasure. But we're also trying to, you know, if people needed a book about um, organic farming or gardening or, or um, you know, that kind of thing, we we would supply those. Um, so we were trying to think of uh, how do you how do you act in a community as a community resource and also as capitalists, which is, is hard because <laughs> I, I didn't really want to grow up to be an old white capitalist, and and yet I did, you know. So it's it's uh, but you have to make a living too. You don't have to, I suppose, but it helps. It's <laughs> <Nice. laughs> sort of nice, yeah, you know. <laughs> but. So yeah, so we've we've had this store for forty years, and and uh, I also have been writing poetry all that time, and going. And every year we we take little trips and go and do poetry trips, and and uh, come back. And uh, I taught for a little bit at at Bates, and I taught for nine years at at the at Mount Ararat at the high school at night with kids who weren't making it in day school. Um, and now I, I teach senior college, so my students have to be at least 60 years old, <laughs> which is really fun. Um, and I just took a geology course at senior college, so I'm, I'm excited about mm-hmm. rocks right now. I'm looking at <laughs> rocks. <laughs> Although our, all our field trips were in the rain, and oh, our, our teacher kept awesome. saying, rocks look better when they're wet. You know, <laughs> so, they're a <laughs> yeah, so I guess that's where... But we're seniors. We're all kind of not good to scramble around at Pemaquid in the rain and wind, but we did. <laughs> but I, I'm still, you know, when I was when I was a, uh, just out of college, 1973, 1974, I was living in California. Um, when, I, when I graduated from college, instead of going to grad school, I wrote to my favorite poet and said, I, can I just come live with you and be your student instead of going to graduate school? Um, and he said yes, so I ended up hitchhiking from Maine to California, and living with a poet named Gary Snyder up in the in the mountains. And uh... Gary Snyder was an American poet born in the 1930s, best known for his ecological and environmental activism, especially through his poetry. The big idea at that point that that a lot of people around there were discussing was the idea of bioregionalism or watershed politics. And so we really, everybody around was thinking about how do you represent your watershed and what is your bioregion and, and where is it that you live and how do you, how do you find ways to live without damaging, without doing too much damage to the place where you live, to the other species where you live, to the structure of the place where you live. Uh, and how do artists represent that. So we were trying as poets to represent ideas of watershed consciousness, you know, and so we we're we we're trying to think like what is the water like and what are the plants like and who are the animals and where does your water actually come from and what's native to this place and what's been introduced and, and you know, it, it was it was a really interesting time and it and, and it made poetry more about environmental sciences than just about rhyming and having <laughs> cadence and rhythm and, and referring back to the Greeks or something. It was so that was really a fascinating um, introduction into the ideas of watershed consciousness and sustainability and, and eco-poetics, as it, it later came to be called. Um, so, you know, so we were combining I, – I figured out that I would never be able to learn everything about the place where I lived. But the more I learned about the place where I lived, the better citizen I would be, you know, because I wouldn't be – I wouldn't be as destructive 
if I was more aware of the other lives that were going on around me. Um, so, you know, so I started to learn about the plants and the animals and where the water came from and who was upstream from me and who was downstream and what changes would I like to see the people upstream from me make, you know, so that when the water got to me, it wasn't bad, you know, and, uh, and that coincided here in Maine with, with a, um, the Passamaquoddy and Penobscot people were having, uh, treaty claims to the land and trying to, to win back through the courts, uh, rights to land. And a lot of the land that they eventually received, a lot of it was islands in the Penobscot River, but they claim now that they didn't, that they also had the right to a clean river. Yeah, uh, because if they, if they have the right to harvest the fish as, as, as a native right, the fish shouldn't be poisoned. So there's still fights going on about who actually controls the quality of water in the rivers in Maine. You know, um, is it the white folks who like to have paper companies putting dioxins into the river after bleaching uh, paper, things like that. So, there, so it became a really interesting educational process to ally yourself with a native way of looking at mm -hmm. this place too. You know, and what the bound, what their boundaries were, because political lines are just political lines. They're just about control and taxation. I mean, you know, all these straight state lines that doesn't represent anything natural. You know, and so we thought we named our store the Gulf of Maine Books because the Gulf of Maine is a body of water that goes from Cape Cod to Cape Sable, Nova Scotia. So it's so it's it's not about state and state or province and province or even countries. There's two countries. There's several provinces and several states, and they're all part of this large watershed that flows into what we call the Gulf of Maine. So, um, uh, you know, and and in fact, we have rivers here that start in what's called New Hampshire, you know, and come down and. and uh, yeah, so if they polluted in Berlin, New Hampshire, and it just comes down the river to us, uh, so we, so we, you know, it was just that was an interesting way of relooking at the maps, um, and it, and it's sort of I think there that policy is influenced by that now, and you have Gulf of Maine councils about fishing and about you know a, a lot of different things, and people are realizing more that other species, you know, for fishing and and uh, wildlife migrations and stuff, those species don't don't uh, obey borders you can't build a wall high enough to keep those birds from migrating you know i mean it's just who are you keeping out you know you can build walls unfortunately high enough in the south to keep migratory animals from getting from mexico into the u.s getting to water holes getting to things like you know, i mean but that's a whole other story um, so yeah so we've had this bookstore for 40 years and then uh, because of that poem and a few others and some and environmental work that I did, I started getting invited to uh, go to Europe, especially with this group of Italian bioregionalist farmer poet uh, environmental activists. So I've I've been there 14 times now and, and working with with that group uh, all around Italy. And I've I've had five books of poems published in Italian by by these. <laughs> Italian awesome. environmentalists, which is really fun, but they've had 2,000 years to screw up the environment. I mean, we're new at it compared to the, the, over there, you know, so they've had a long time to screw things up. So there's a lot of, uh, like there's a group that's worried about the Po River Basin and the Po and, and thinking of that as a watershed and, and uh, looking into who's polluting it and looking into like the bird migrations that go through the, the Po River Basin um, twice a year. 
and and uh, sort of restoring the plant vitality of the plants that those creatures actually need and want. So it's, it's been fun to go to somebody else's place and see what they're doing, and it gives you ways of thinking about your place that maybe you haven't. Yeah. Yeah. You know. mm-hmm. Like last year, I went on a, a dragonfly walk in the Cathans Preserve, and we had a dragonfly expert, and he was talking about dragonflies as migratory species and how some varieties of dragonfly actually migrate and sometimes in such big clusters that radar picks them up <laughs> you know and i'd never thought about main dragonflies going somewhere else and needing places along the way to stop and refuel you know i mean it's we know that's happening with birds and butterflies that that uh, you know we're encouraging them here but if they leave here and fly to mexico they still need places along the way to refuel and those places are getting screwed up too so it's mm-hmm. it's you know you you're not just not connected to the rest of the planet, and especially with migratory species, they teach you, or with the flows of water, they teach you how you're connected to more than just the place where your house is. Or where. It's really important to a lot of migratory birds, yeah. and and a lot of the bird migrations are timed to the time when the the crabs there are laying their eggs, yeah. right? And that's being decimated. So the red knots and all a lot of other little critters are, are there. Migrations are being disrupted because of human activity in the places where they're used to feeding. So it's, mm-hmm. and here, like a lot of the birds arrive hoping for berries, and we've done away with the native berries and planted other berries that they don't necessarily get any nutrition from. So it's it's kind of you know like we have to relearn. I mean that's part of being a good citizen. You you restore the plant life that is useful to the animal and insect life that's there as well. You know, but. That's a whole other study. I mean, there's so much to learn. You know, I, I, I think I will never learn enough to be a good citizen. But, but the the fact that people are trying. I mean, there's a lot of people trying to restore milkweed growth in Maine so that the monarchs have stuff to eat, or, or people who aren't cutting down goldenrod anymore, or who are learning about native plants and, you know, as a way of uh, encouraging other critters to be here, but also. Eating native plants. I mean, eat, you know, that, that whole idea of sustainability, is it about just sustaining human populations? Or is it about sustaining the whole bioregion and, and, you know, and being friends with the plants and animals and, and you know, sustaining them as well? Um, I, I have large animals. I used to have horses. Now I have donkeys. And they, they rely on hay. And most, a lot of the hay fields in Maine are worth more money as house lots and developments. So a lot of the good hay fields... Old farmers don't have money, and they sell off their land to housing developers, and there's less and less hay to feed to large animals. So the price of hay has consequently gone up. So every winter, poor people who can't afford the hay or the feed start selling their horses. You know, mm-hmm. to, There's a firm from Quebec who play, pays basically 75 bucks, and they turn it into f- food. <laughs> they, they turn your horse into horse meat. For, I would, you know, but that, but that part of that is thinking about Maine Farmland Trust, for example, who they are thinking about keeping farmlands in farmland and keeping hayfields in hayfields. And keep, I mean, there are there are groups who are thinking intelligently about the future um, and what we what we want as a state, what we want to be, and what we want to have. And that whole idea of sustainability, um, more and more, I think, speaks to people. But then you have to change your life. You know, you have to. You you don't. I mean, like when I in that poem, when I ask if you're, what are you, are you going to act? It's like you can read about sustainability, and then what do you do? Yeah.
come downtown and use your credit card to get a cup of coffee. You know, that's we've just committed two strange acts, but it's a, it's a lot of it is about human awareness and people not only knowing how to live better, but actually doing it. Mm. You know, and I think Maine is lucky because we have this whole wave of young people who want to farm. And there's been this <laughs> yeah. sort of upsurge of farmer's markets. I mean, 20 years ago in Brunswick, you wouldn't have found the vitality of, of not only a summer farmer's market, but a winter farmer's market and, and all these things and all, all these younger folks wanting to grow stuff. And uh, it's just, you know, it's just... And, and who bought fermented foods back then? You know, you know there's all of a sudden, you know, all these things are happening because there are younger people taking over. I mean, the older people, the older farmers are dying and a lot of their farms are getting sold off and cut up. But there's this wonderful new generation of people that, that gives us hope, you know, who are really back into into older ways. And maybe they use modern equipment, maybe they don't, you know, but uh, it's, it's a great thing to see, I think. Yeah. But we don't want them using chemicals on their on their farms. You know, I mean, there there are always, you know, maybe they're good farmers, but they're using pesticides or herbicides. Or, and so, you know, over forty years ago now, the the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association started, and, and like I said, we had a booth there at their common ground fair for thirty nine years. The first year we had a booth there. About 500 people came to the fair over the weekend, and it was this weirdo, hippie weirdo organic farming <laughs> idea, you know, and it was just basically back to the landers getting together to have a harvest party. And last year, 65,000 people yeah. paid to go to that fair over three days. So I think the hippie weirdos won, you know. <laughs> I mean, look at that, 65,000 people. There are all these people in Maine now who want good food don't want chemicals in their food, don't want you to use chemicals when you're growing their food. I mean, it, it's really, um, there's been, a, I think, a real change in consciousness. And, and that's, you know, whether it was the old hippies or, or just the, mm -hmm. you know, the diehard Maine farmers, but it's been really fun to watch that, although it's gotten to the point where you go to this organic fair in the fall and 65,000 people show up and I think each one of them is in a car individually <laughs> and they're waiting for a place to park on Saturday and there's a blue haze hanging over because everyone has their motors going and they're waiting in line to get a place. You know, <laughs> there are some questions about that, but it's such a great event and, you know, and, and it's, it's symbolic. It shows what people have been up to all summer. So all of a sudden all these people get together who've been raising organic food, doing herb gardening, doing crafts, doing, I mean, there's this whole wonderful gathering of pe people with large animals, you know, who come together and we just celebrate that choice of lifestyles in the, in the state, you know, which is really heartening to me because I've always lived in Maine, I, I, you know, and uh, it sure is different than it used to be. Do you see that in, like, the people or, like, the customers that you see in your store, like, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm heartened. You know, we like I said, we were the hippie weirdo bookstore for a while, and now we have a pretty wide spread of people with a pretty wide spread of interests. Um, but they're open to a lot of stuff. I, I think that has. I think it has. I mean, we're still open. First of all, we're, you know, we're we're still a positive uh, business. You know, and we haven't gone out of business because of. Amazon and Barnes and Noble and Borders and those those things. Uh, we're still here. We still have people who want to read books and are interested in having a, a literate intellectual life. 
Uh, and also we sell a lot of kids' books, and, and we're, we kind of aim our kids' books towards some good ideas, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Where are the Gretas of this world? You know, who are, who are these kids? So, you know, and, and encouraging people to give kids books, you know, which is happening too. Uh, that's, that's, you know, now people have baby showers and they just ask people to bring books. I mean, this, this is kind of a... They don't ask people to bring devices. <laughs> you know? <laughs> you know? They don't say, bring a Kindle for my kid. It's like, bring a book. You know, that's, there's a difference. Um, How do you pick the books? Well, my wife and I, you know, we've done it for 40 years. We kind of have a sense of what our customer base wants to have, wants to read. But we've sort of self-selected that customer base so that <laughs> no one comes in asking okay. for Donald Trump Jr.'s new book, for example. <laughs> uh, you know, I mean, there are, there are certain things that you wouldn't expect to find here, uh, which is not censoring. It's just when you're on your own business, you can choose what you sell. Mm -hmm. You know, and if someone wanted to order it, we would order it um, with a smirk, maybe. But we would. Order it. <laughs> but you know, I mean, you have your own business. You do what you, you do, what you like. Um, you know, so we 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 read a lot of reviews. We take customer suggestions. We you know we just we can't figure it out by ourselves. We're open to the community to tell us what's you know because we can order stuff uh, if we don't have it now. With computers, you can order stuff. Like here, we can order stuff in the morning and get it the next afternoon. So it's pretty fast. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and the, the evil empire isn't much faster than that. He's speaking about Amazon, for those who didn't pick up on that. You know, even though they, they want to have a drone fleet and 30-minute delivery or something, I, it's uh, not the same. And we don't do face recognition or anything. We do <laughs> actual face recognition, <laughs> you know, literal face recognition. Well, uh, hi, uh, you know, we remember, we remember you. Although I'm losing that. I'm getting old. I'm not remembering people's names as well as I used to. But that's too many. I mean, we've seen too many book titles and too many authors. You know, it's like, oh. so I, I do rely on devices to help me remember that. <laughs> yeah. Do your educational um, pursuits influence your, your book choices as well. Yeah, like, of course. Like yeah, yeah, yeah. Geology, yeah. senior college. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, definitely, because um, I'm still learning about stuff. And, and when I find stuff that's interesting that I think someone here might also be interested in, and then if I'm excited about it, I can share that enthusiasm with people who come in. Uh, so, yeah. and, and uh, Could you tell us about your current projects? Yeah, I just took a geology course, and my next course is planting for bees and butterflies. So I'm going to learn about, the, you know. But I teach. Over the last three years, I taught a Dante's Inferno course, a Canterbury Tales course, and a um, Chinese Mountain Poetry course. Those are the last three courses I taught at senior college. So I have those interests as well, you know. And my interests, I'm working on a, a project about stones that, Last year I had a grant. Um, I was in Venice for a month doing this project. The project started out as how the stones came to Venice because you go to Venice, Italy, and it's a city built totally on a mud flat. There's no stone there. It's just mud. It's islands, mud. The, the buildings aren't on foundations. They're all on posts. They're all set on wooden poles. And and, uh, and yet every, there's marble and granite and all, there's stone everywhere. And then they have an island making glass out of sand. Where's the sand come from? Uh, there's all these questions that I had. So Venice in the News recently has uh, received some flooding unlike any it's received before. So a lot of uh, Venetians are leaving the city um, because uh, 
it's damaging critical infrastructure uh, because the city has been built on pilings over um, uh, mudflats. And now I'm trying to pull that back to Maine and New England, and then I'm going back to Venice for six weeks next year to pull it back to Venice. So it's it's turning into this larger. Both my grandparents, my grandfathers worked in quarries in New England, one in Vermont and one in Maine. So I've been going to their quarries and learning about stone quarries in Maine and New England and stone. I mean, stone's been around way longer than anything, you know, I mean, and, and so um, it's just really been interesting to me. So the geology course was so that I could put names to the stone right around here, but they're all human names. That's, you know, that stone has had that name for, what, 100 years maybe? And that stone is... 400 million years old, 200. So it doesn't really care about that name. It doesn't, you know, Stone doesn't really care about its Latin name, I don't think, you know. Uh, like the Cape Elizabeth formation. Who, you know, what's that? That's Stone, you know. So I've been trying to think of, in terms of Stone and time. And like my grandfather was in the quarry in the 1920s, but in Stone time, the, the break between the 1920s and right now, is infinitesimal so i can almost hear my grandfather you know it's like he just left uh, it, it's like we're almost there at the same time it's so small because that stone has been around for a really we were my geology class went to look at some ten thousand year old mud and we were dinking in clay basically we were digging around with our hands and coming up with all these clamshells and they were ten thousand years old you know mm-hmm. Which they may serve at some at McDonald's, you know. If you get clams, they're probably ten thousand years old. But, you know, it was just it was, it was really. I mean, that that kind of history for us in this country, where we've only been here for three hundred or four hundred years, and to you know to have that larger, like when I go to Italy, the environmentalists there, stuff's been going on for over two thousand years. The humanists have been altering the environment. You know, and imagine if we had Trump for two thousand years, there'd be nothing left. You know? Except money and hotels. Yeah, it's it's you know humans can have. They're not my favorite species. I, I, you know I don't think they're the apex of of uh, creation necessarily. But have you seen the effects of um, climate change in your travels to Venice? Recently? Oh yeah. Oh sure. I mean, look at the news this week. Yeah, reading about the stone <laughs> that the marble that's like having to be replaced because of flooding. Well, the marble. The marble is, that's what they're talking about right now. What they won't talk about is how the marble is having to be replaced on outdoor statues and ornamentation because the particulate that the cruise ships emit combines with the fog and mist and creates sulfuric acid. Sulfuric acid is the same thing as acid rain. And it's eating away marble all around the city. So my question was, if it eats away marble, what does it do to your lungs if you live there? If this if this stuff can eat marble and you're breathing it in, it's a scary question. What does it do? But no one wants to talk about it. And and most of the guests in Venice are there for a day or two, mm-hmm. so they're not there very long. But those cruise ships never turn off because they're floating hotels and they have to stay on, so they're constantly emitting particulate, mm-hmm. which is going into the atmosphere. And then when they're going by, the the vibrations of the motors is so strong that. All those buildings, like I said, are on posts. And if you've got a building on a post and something's going by in front of it that's vibrating, the whole building starts to vibrate. So plaster falls off the walls, the windows stop closing, the doors stop closing. Buildings shift on the posts. Uh, 
oh, these things are from hell. These giant. Uh, yeah, I'm not a big fan of cruise ships, shall we say? But, uh, <laughs> but they are contributing. But because they contribute so much money to part of the system in Venice, the mayor doesn't want to uh, say anything bad about them because he wants to keep bringing them in. The locals hate them, you know. But the the mayor because they don't buy when they come ashore. They don't they don't eat in Venice. They don't sleep in Venice. But they roam around in packs of hundreds and they buy little fake Murano glass gondolas and stuff. But they don't really, you know, how do they actually contribute to the day-to-day income in Venice? You know, they pay the harbor people a lot of money, you know, to dock there and to gas up there. I mean, they pay a lot of money for that. So somebody's making a lot of money. And, and you know, I hate to say it, but in Italy, if somebody's making a lot of money, it might not be a good bunch of people. <laughs> That's making a lot of money, shall we say? Um, but I, and most of the stone there is is, you know, there's no there's no quarries, there's no source of stone in Venice, so it's all from someplace else. Um, so it doesn't reflect that region. Yeah, going back to the tourism thing, I'm curious yeah. if you have any thoughts on like tourism in Maine, because I feel like there's maybe not quite to the extent of Venice, but. I've definitely sort of gotten the sense that there is some like frustration with tourism culture in the summer in Maine. Oh yeah. Do you like have any thoughts on that? I, well, you know, I I I've lived here for yeah. 68 years, so so um, and now you know Acadia is one of the what one of the three most visited national parks in the United States, and they're having traffic jams every day <laughs> on Mount Cadillac, and now they've got cruise ships coming in, and they're trucking those cruise ship people around. And again, the cruise ships come in here, they come into Portland, they come into Rockland. Again, they don't go to the restaurants. They're not staying overnight. They're going out on the boat. So what are they doing? You know, they're buying little T-shirts and trinkets. Um, and do they actually know where they are? I don't think they know where. They, I don't think they know the reality of where they are. I mean, Acadia is pretty beautiful, but what do they know about it? Hmm. And what are they interested? In? Do they really want to know about where they are? I think we have a lot of. I, there are a lot of wonderful tourists who come here because they love this place, and they and they. A lot of them seem to want to know about where, how to live here, and what goes on here. And and I like those people. You know, I don't want them to live here. <laughs> it's okay if they go away, but the ones who are are concerned about where they are, you know, we've got this brand new. Well, you guys, did you both work at, at the new new park at the National Monument? Or, oh. or, or so, for a little context here, uh, both Marie and I worked for the Friends of Catan Woods and Waters, which is the fundraising arm to the National Monument, um, the Catan Woods and Waters National Monument, that is the newest national monument in Maine, uh, doing different internship opportunities over the summertime and continuing into the fall. Yeah, so I mean we've got that and and we had a governor who didn't want it to happen. I mean, yeah, I mean we've we've got local responses to not wanting people coming here to enjoy the natural world which just drives me crazy. I I'm, you know like it's like the clean coal idea. It's not coming back. And I don't think the, the huge paper industry that we used to have is really ever coming back either. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, you know, extractive industries may not be the way the future goes, but if you have people who want to come here because of the beauty of the place and want to hike and camp and canoe and, and do things that are not essentially destructive to that place, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I think we should be encouraging that. Of course, then there's the snowmobilers. I'm not, you know, they want to come too. <laughs> so I'm not sure, 
you know, but that's okay. I, I was, I, you know, back in the seventies, there was a vote to set aside um, the Bigelow Range in Western Maine on the edge of Flagstaff Lake, and there was a developer who wanted to make that into the Aspen of the East. And then there were a group of environmentalists who wanted to set it aside as as a protected area, a state protected area. And they had a vote, and it only passed by about between one and two percent, I think. Uh, mm-hmm. And it only passed because a deal was made that the snowmobilers could have one snowmobile trail that went all the way through the preserve from one end to the other. And that brought them around, so they voted for it too. Uh, and it passed, and it was created. And now that we've got this nice beautiful preserve there instead of the aspen of the east and it has a snowmobile trail but people keep to the snowmobile trail and and uh, they enjoy it as well as we do so I, you know I, I i'm not all completely down on motorized vehicles because I, I think that they actually helped save a really beautiful part of the state um and if they're not going wherever they want at will because i you know that's that's I wouldn't want to be a moose and have snowmobiles all of a sudden roaring up and behind me. But, and back when I was doing Earth First stuff, we were a little nastier than that. We we were a little less well behaved, but <laughs> we got some points across. Mm-hmm. That was back during the tree spiking and you know all uh, interesting stuff went on. And, but I of course had nothing to do with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it, you know I think that. There are a number of people who come to Maine because they love this place. Some people come here and they have they love the place that existed about a hundred years ago, <laughs> and they think it's you know these quaint little Maine towns where the fishermen still you know da 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 da, and and uh, but then they come and because they're here they change that. This conversation reminds me of the Portland working waterfront where the fishermen are currently waging a battle to stand their ground and not be convicted or evicted from their territorial uh, fishing grounds, one of the most important ports on the east coast of the United States and critical to the the main economy. Um, we see all too often that uh, historic industrial and working ports become something entirely else when other people move in and, and try to make them not what they once were. You know, because they want a place to stay and they want a place to eat and they want a place to park their cars. And all of a sudden, the quaint little fishing town has little bed and breakfasts and some new food places. And people are coming there. And then they want to, then they want this and they want this. And we we are in in Stonington this summer at the Granite Museum, and there was a guy in there yelling that he couldn't get a Wi-Fi connection. And we're like, "Man, you're in Stonington, Maine. You know, just relax. You know." <laughs> but he was all upset. And we're like. Just kind of nonplussed by that, but mm. you know, it's it's people have different ways of living. That's you know, you come to Maine and you live like you live in New York. It's it's you may not be able to get the coffee you want or the newspaper you want, or, or you know, it's it's uh, and why should you? Mm-hmm. How but, have you seen Brunswick specifically change? Brunswick's changed, I think, in the other direction. Uh, you know, for when I first got here, Brunswick had a, a really large naval air station with seven thousand service people connected to the naval air station, and and you know, and then a few years ago they all left, and and it and and all of a sudden there was all this room, you know, there were there was all this housing available, and there was all this stuff out on the base that that was, um, so it it, it you know seven thousand people left, 
a lot of a bunch of them had kids in schools. They all left. You know, it was, it was a real it was a real change. Uh, but Brunswick seems still pretty good. You know, it, it doesn't seem overrun. I think because we Brunswick also doesn't have much shoreline. Yeah. You know, we don't have much access to the coast in Brunswick. You know, people drive down to Bailey's Island or South Harpswell yeah. or something. But, mm-hmm. um, but also Brunswick has Bowdoin, and, and people are retiring here because of the activities and, and the, the sort of intellectual and literary scene that they can still be a part of, even if they're retired from their jobs in New Hampshire or Massachusetts or something. And it's cool because there's all this, you know, we can go up and go to talks and go to the movie, movies and hear music. And, and uh, you know, now there's senior college, so people in their 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s can take courses from retired professors and, you know, still have an intellectual life and not just feel like, well, my life is over and now I'm going to mm-hmm. sit in my room. Um, they can come here and still have still have cool stuff happening. Um but again, they they come to Maine because they like Maine too, you know, like, which is okay. I, I understand that because I like Maine too. I've I've been a lot of places and I, I'm still here, and it's not just that I'm stuck. I enjoy what I'm doing, hmm. which is you know, that's good. If you can figure out what you want to do and then enjoy doing it, then, you know, <laughs> you did something right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, is it, it, the expectation that you're going to grow up and find a job and make a lot of money or is the expectation that you're going to grow up and be part of a, a part of a world that you understand and try to enhance uh, and, and not necessarily make a lot of money doing that but have a full rich life this full range and quality of life sort of relates back to our definition of sustainability um, and if you want to hear more about how we choose to define it uh, please refer back to episodes one and two where Marie and I speak and then Marie and I speak with our boss, Bethany Taylor, about how we define it, as well as episode three, as well as the episode with Keisha Payson. You know, there's different ways of being rich, I think. I mean, I, I lived for 10 years without plumbing and electricity. And now when people come in and say that their power went out for a day, I, I just don't have that much pity. You know, it's like... <laughs> Your grandparents probably lived that way, you know. <laughs> like it's not that bad. Think about it. But but it's a big thing now to lose your power for you know a day. Um, and it's not that I'm a friend of Central Maine Power at all. But yeah, I, I think I, I you know I think I'm lucky that I've always I've always lived in Maine, so I've always been able to live in a rural. I don't live in Brunswick. I live on a farm out on the Isabel Lake. So I've always been able to live a, a kind of rural lifestyle and not be encumbered in a way I think I would be if I lived in a city. Mm. But I've never lived in a city, so I don't know what that experience should actually be like. Mm. Um, I'm sure it would have its pluses. <laughs> There'd be a lot of stuff I could do. You know? <laughs> I've only been I've been to New York City twice in my life. I'm 68 years old. Nope. The Central Park Zoo put a poem of mine up on two big walls next to the polar bear exhibit. And I wanted to go see that. So so we <laughs> went so down funny. to see my poem in the Central Park Zoo. And it was horrible. It was a horrible experience. The polar bears oh, no. were suffering from such anxiety that they had them on antidepressants. They had the polar bears on antidepressants. And they were throwing themselves against the fake icebergs. And I was like, oh, my God, no. you know. So it wasn't that. And, and the funny thing was that 
they'd asked me for permission and I, I was an idiot and I said, you can only put the poem up if it faces the bears so they can see it. So they did, but they put it in a way that when you're walking to see the bears, you could come from two directions. So you could read my poem from start to finish, but if you came the other way, you read it from finish to start, basically. <laughs> um, and I, I hadn't thought of that. And when I got there, I read it and I kind of liked it the backwards right. way. I thought, this is kind of cool. So, so I was okay with that, but I hadn't thought of that. But it was really funny. We went, we went to the park staff, and I said, I'm one of the poets. And the woman looked at me, and she said, oh, we thought they were all dead. <laughs> so, <laughs> but there were two of us, Naomi Nye and myself, who were still alive. But, but uh, you know, there was a Walt Whitman poem and a Frank O'Hara poem and stuff around. But um, So, yeah, I, I'm not big on the... <laughs> I'm not big on the big city. I've been in, you know, lots of European cities, but but not so much uh, down there. It's kind of expensive and fast for me. I'm just the the first time I went to Boston when I was 17. The first night I was there, I was for some reason I still don't know. I was at two in the morning. I was in the middle of of uh, the Mass Turnpike in front of the Prudential Building, and got run over by a car. <laughs> And missed my whole senior year of high school because I was so smashed up. And that was the first time I went to the city without my parents, you know. So it was kind of a sign that, you know, <laughs> Gary the Hick and the city maybe did not go, go well together. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I kind of avoided the city after that until I started going to Europe. And, then, and um, you know, those cities are older and walkable in, in a way that, uh, although frightening, I mean, Na- <laughs> Naples is frightening to walk around, but it's a fun city. Venice, I don't have to worry. There's no cars. There's not even bicycles. You know, you just walk or take boats. And now I guess you take boats more because it's under three feet of water. <laughs> so, <laughs> but I read last year, I went to Naples and I read poetry in a tattoo bar. And that was wonderful. <laughs> yeah, The first night I read in a, a yoga studio where everybody had really good posture and was really quiet. And then the next night I read in a tattoo bar where posture and quiet were not the (laughs) prevailing themes. And it was so much fun. It was just really exciting. And I did it because of a a young woman who had been the uh, language fellow at Bowdoin three years ago now Mm -hmm. who who came here from southern Italy. And we became really good friends. And she... She had us when she went back to Italy. She she had my wife Beth and I come, and we stayed with her parents at their house, and and it was so much fun. It was so much fun, and she she was a Bowdoin teaching fellow. You know, oh. I guess every year there are yeah. language fellows, right? She was she was she kind of adopted us and started coming down here almost every day and, and hanging out. And we started taking her home with us and <laughs> taking her on hikes and stuff, and she just really and her parents liked us for that because they liked it that their daughter was feeling more comfortable here. Mm. You know. Her mother said she cried every day that Mara was here. <laughs> How do you say you touch on the issue of sustainability? Well, in a way, my, my life is about sustainability, but it's, it's coming from a weird angle. I mean, I'm not a farmer. I'm not an environmental advocate. I'm, I'm a bookstore owner and poet, you know, so that's – and teacher, I guess. But, you know, it's, it's – I'm trying to encourage others and then acting when I can. Mm. Um, so exposing people to resources and ideas and then in my own life doing the little that I can. You know, like my conservation easement is for birds, bees, and butterflies. So I'm trying to learn how to, you know, how to have the plants that 
native bees want to have and that butterflies want to have and that meaning on his property berries the birds actually want to eat and not berries that look pretty but they don't get any nutrition from so you know i'm just trying to do that little thing and, and my neighbors are starting you know it's like they get mad at me because i'm spreading i'm out there spreading milkweed and they're like <laughs> what are you doing you know and, I, and when i explain it to them it's it's a uh, couple of years ago my next door neighbor he has all these really old apple trees and, and they look kind of ugly and the apples don't look that good so he was going to cut one down that was right next to his barn and i said oh that that's that's there for a reason that, that tree was planted there so I said, bring me a bunch of the apples, and I'll press them and make cider for you. We'll see what it tastes like. And so they did. And, of course, the cider was delicious. It was really good. <laughs> so instead of cutting the tree down, they pruned it, you know, and it had more apples this year. And it was like just getting them to think about, oh, yeah, the, the functionality of this tree, the, the utility of it. Instead of, oh, the apples are ugly. Well, if you make cider out of them, you never see the apples. You know, you don't know what the apples look like physically, but you get this wonderful. So, you know, so and someone planted that, those trees because they were good apples, you know, um, just little things like that, which are great teaching moments. And then he shows me how to fix my tractor. So, you know, there's there's a back and forth there. It's, it's a good trade. <laughs> but we live. Our house was owned by two nature writers from the 1930s and 40s. Um, a guy named Henry Beston and his wife Elizabeth Coatsworth. And they were friends with Rachel Carson. And Henry wrote a book about living on Cape Cod that became a big nature writing classic called The Outermost House. And then they moved to Maine because it was too populated in Massachusetts. So they moved to Maine in 1931 and bought this farm way out in the boonies. And that's where we live. So it, the, the farm has a history of... Um, literature tied to the environment that, that's that's now three generations um and so uh pilgrims show up wanting to see the, he has a lot of readers and they show up wanting to see the place where he lived and his grave is there and they're oh henry Beston. and um <laughs> bill mckibben came and visited and, and was looking for henry's grave and actually in hope human and wild he quotes from the plaque that's on henry's grave you know while he's at the house so it's kind of it, there's this mm -hmm. nice continuity of interest there and we're trying to <laughs> keep their farm in a way that we think um fits with their philosophies you know because when they lived there in the 30s into the 40s they didn't have running water and they didn't have electricity and that gradually came to them but they lived there before those things were available to them and did quite well actually was it like Working well, no, they were writers. Okay, Their daughter said like, <laughs> what they grew there were words. <laughs> but they had people who farmed the farm. Okay. Uh, they had neighbors who, who hate it uh, with oxen. Oh, cool. So they, they came with oxen and, and cut the hay fields and uh, used the hay for their animals. So the hay, you know, the field was always in hay from the th probably, well, the beginning of the 20th century and still is, except now I don't cut it for hay. So my neighbors are like, what do you, how come you're not, you know, my neighbor's still hay and I've got goldenrod and milkweed and asters and all this <laughs> stuff growing up, but I've got way more birds and butterflies. I've got bobolinks in my field. Uh -huh. They don't, you know, so, so, uh, what's the use of a field? You know, but they're, they're, that makes sense to me because I've still got donkeys and they still eat hay. So it's, it's in the winter you need hay, bales of hay. So somebody has to still be baling hay and keeping it for the animals. Um, but that's cool because I, I pay my neighbors for their hay. And, and uh, that if they can sell their hay, then maybe they don't have to 
turn their land into house lots. Hmm. You know, so hopefully it's helping in that. When you look at the general trend of the news, of the of the sort of historical news and cultural news, it doesn't necessarily sh lend itself positively to sustainability. I mean, people's lives. You know, they want the latest device that they can speak to when things happen. You know, and what mineral resources are mined out of some place in in some horrible hellhole in Africa? Not really, where people are working for ten cents a day and dying. You know, it's it's. Uh, there was just a news report today about how many people from. India are dying in Africa right now a day. Laborers there, 15 people a day on average laboring from India over in, in Africa. Working on like rare earth minerals? Well, minerals and also uh, just just not being housed well and having bad nutrition and diseases and also working rare earth minerals. It's just, it's just, you know, 15 people a day just from India um, in order to get some of those minerals that, that are needed to... to uh, make the 21st century happen yeah yeah, yeah. Mm. i i just three months ago i got my first credit card and i still don't have a phone so I, my, my wife says i'm almost into the 21st century i'm just <laughs> just just kind of on the edge you know i think i've hit d two deer you know, total my car at night out in back roads. It would have been good to have at least a flip phone so I could have <laughs> called somebody, you know. I mean, I can see the utility of that, uh, but I don't really need to get caught up in, in – I don't need all those messages, you know. I like some of these apps where you can hold it up and it tells you what bird is singing that song or you can take <laughs> a picture of a plant and it tells you what you're I – mean, those I like. I, I mean, that would be cool out in the field, I think, for me, but – this reminds us of the burning episode that we did last week. If you haven't listened to it, it's a, a hilarious episode about birds burning and bird people um, where Rhea and I as non-burning people learn a ton about what makes this interesting profession so, so unique and fascinating. <laughs> At the same time, yeah, there's a lot of things like so much power in technology that like, I don't know. Sometimes it's hard to just be like, uh huh, you're looking at a screen because yeah. they're like, I don't know, you have like so much choice in, in actually how you use it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Kind of dangerous. But well, that's really see cool. that, yeah, because I can see the cool things it would do for me, but I can also see myself getting too involved, yeah. <laughs> not coming out for hours at a time, you know. <laughs> but, I recently got a new phone and like let myself just be like, woohoo, yeah, I have a phone. Wear your thumbs out. <laughs> <laughs> so how long would you say you've been in the book world versus the electronic? Well, I, I'm still into books. You know, it's, I'm, I'm like this old school. I've run a bookstore for 40 years, and I worked in another bookstore five years before that. So I, it's that's a long time in, in the book world. So I'll, you know, I'll, I'll, still, I'll pass away while I'm still in the book world. You know, I, I, Now it's cool. I, I'm old. I don't have to worry about it because people don't expect old people to be up on technology these days. <laughs> And Gary, what other things are you involved in with the Brunswick community? <laughs> well, I also I'm, I'm poetry editor of a, <clears throat> of a journal called Amjambo Africa, and it comes out once a month. And it's for well, it's by and for primarily people from sub-Saharan Africa who are now here in Maine. And so my job is to try to collect poems from uh, originally African people who are now here in the state and and. I'm trying to get. I'm trying to convince people that 
telling their stories is really useful for the rest of us here to hear their stories and that one way to do that is is to write poems about it you know and yeah. and uh that's really fun so i'm i'm besides being here in maine i'm also learning about you know I, i've worked with young poets from darfur and from rwanda and from somalia and and uh, zimbabwe and now there's people in Maine who just got here from Angola and Democratic Republic of the Congo. So I mean, there's all these people coming into Maine whose stories we don't know at all, mm. you know. And and uh, I went to a conference two summers ago in Greece that was about climate change and spirituality. And one whole day was about it was in Greece, so they were talking about the refugee <laughs> crisis and saying that the refugee crisis is primarily climate change crisis and that people are fleeing because of drought, because of war over resources, uh, that a lot of it is climate-driven. And that's how the Greeks look at it, unlike us, who say, well, these are rapists and thugs who are trying to sneak into the United States. You know, just kind of, let's, let's build a wall to keep them out. Uh, it was really interesting to think that way, to think that, and to look at the history of the world, and people have moved around because of access to water, access to wood, access to you know various things, or access to good soil to grow things. And, um, Interesting to see the world not as political borders, but as regions with weather and resources and, and uh, you know, reasons for moving around. But that's you have to look at history larger than just your own personal history. I don't think our president looks at history larger than his own personal history. And he doesn't even look at his own personal history. Where's his wife from? Where's his grandfather from? I mean, you know, it's just... Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Going back to the storytelling uh -oh. bit, yeah. <laughs> well, I was just I was just curious what you see the value in in storytelling. I think storytelling creates the world. I think we create the world for each other through stories, through language, and that as as you're living in the world, you're constantly being told stories, and and they create the way you see the world. I mean, your parents tell you stories, they read you books, your your relatives tell you stories, then your teachers start telling you stories, the books start telling you stories, your friends tell you stories. Um, and, you know, I, I think that language... And for the longest part of human history, it's been oral traditions. I mean, we didn't have printing presses until just a short time ago, really, in terms of the length of human history. Primarily, it's been, you know, oral history. And in some parts of the world, it still is. I mean, some of the African people coming here, their tribal traditions, the Somalis didn't have an agreed-upon written language until 1973. You know, I mean, it's, 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 and it's valued to be a storyteller in a lot of those traditions uh, because you're remembering the history of your group, you're remembering the gene genealogy of your group, you're remembering um, the, the way the Passamaquoddies and Penobscots named all the place names up and down the rivers, like here's where you carried around the rapids and here's where the shad were and here's where you dried the fish. If you learn the names of the river as you come down the river, you know how to how to use each part of that river. It's not named after some white ancestor. It's named after a function. So if you know you're coming to a place where there's a falls or a rapid that you should carry around and that's implied by the name, you know, or here's where the, sh the salmon come or here's where the shad are, you know, because there's a lot of shad right down there that they can't get up past that dam anymore uh, and when the, the power company that took over that dam in their contract said that they would build a run that the shad could use and they've never done it uh, so the shad are still frustrated 
they're just they're just down there and they're not making it up uh, you know so but but now it's wonderful to see dams and, and obstructions coming down so that it was i mean it's become a really big success story where i live because i live about four miles from damascotta mills where we've rebuilt the whole fish run for the alewives and there's this incredible alewife return now over a million fish this year and we have a party there every year uh, on Memorial Weekend. We have a party to welcome the alewives back. And there's food and music. The weird thing is that we eat alewives during the party. Which I, <laughs> so I suggested we, we had to have a similar party to welcome the tourists back. And we bro- broil a couple, you know, and just, just, you know, just to make the point. It, it seemed weird that we were eating the alewives to welcome them back. Uh, <laughs> but, but it's such a primal thing to go there and see. I mean, when they're using the fish run in full force... They're, the fish run is completely full and, and the cove is completely full and there's a line of fish out into the bay and you can see it moving, waiting for, you know, wait, the fish waiting for their, their way up into the lake. And it's so great. And it just, and, you know, when you think that there used to be clouds of birds coming over in the same way, you know, and there aren't anymore, you know, you know just, um, it must have been really cool to see all that. I miss it. And a lot of those birds aren't coming back, you know. Some of them are extinct, and some of the other critters are extinct. It's it's you know, so like my geology course. Now I'm thinking, I'm looking at rocks that were around before there was anything crawling around. And you know, it's it's they're they're so early and primitive. And then something happened before that. You know, like what happened with the Big Bang, and and what was there before the Big Bang? You know, it's, it's like history just spreads out, and the, the human presence is so small. Uh, and the use of written language is, is way smaller than that, you know. So there's just this little component where, and now it's, you know, it's computers. Um, the new spoken languages when you ask Alexa for something. And, you know, like, I, I'm Beth's, my wife's phone keeps hearing things and, and saying stuff to us, you know. And we're like, what the hell is that? You know, you know what I mean? It's like all of a sudden the phone is... I didn't understand. Could you repeat that? Well, like, no, we don't. <laughs> it's, go away. We don't. It's, it's a strange thing to me. But I do think that, that stories create the world. Because people from different parts of the world view the world differently. You know? And and they have different creation stories. And the plants and animals have different functions in their stories. And in some some places, plants and animals are all gods. You know, they're all holy. Wouldn't I like that to be true again, you know? Uh, and, and here we give them all Latin names, but I don't think they care about Latin names. They don't speak Latin. Who does? Does anybody speak Latin anymore? Nobody speaks. You know, it's... it's. So you give plants Latin names, you know? I don't think they call each other by those names, but I... You know, and, and that's one of my other things. I've, I've always told people that we need to... We need to find poets who will translate from other species. So, I mean... The, the humpback whale oral epics must be just great. <laughs> and the monarch butterfly, if you're a butterfly and you fly from Maine to Mexico, you've got a hell of a story to tell, you know? And they're doing it for sex, you know? I mean, they're flying down there to reproduce. Let's not, let's not candy coat this, you know? It's, it's like, like a lot of people fly to Mexico to have sex on vacation, you know? And it's like, so the monarchs are doing the same thing, you know? And they're like, we're going to reproduce. They're doing it to reproduce. That's true. That's, so that's different. But when I work with like some of the folks from African countries, you know, the the, the storytelling <coughs> tradition is really, really strong. 
really, really strong. And then they get here and they, they don't understand why we don't know the stories of our families back eight generations. <laughs> you know, why don't you know that? That's just, it's important. You don't even know where your ancestors are buried. You know, it's, and I don't have a good answer when people mm -hmm. say that. You know, it's like, well, you're right. <laughs> good question. And yet we think of them as coming from primitive societies. You know what I mean? Which only means first. I mean, primus, prime, you know, it's, it's the original. It's, but, or savage means like dweller in the forest, which is not a bad thing to be. Back when there still were forests. Do you want to read another poem maybe to finish off? Or? Sure. I, well, I, you know, yeah. I mean, that's kind of what I do. <laughs> so I spent the fall of 1979 and the summer of 1980 in northern Newfoundland and southern Labrador. And I was looking at, I was working for a little museum and mostly I was looking at whales and icebergs and caribou. Um, and one day I came across a dying humpback, male humpback on a beach. Uh, and I didn't really know, we're not really brought up to deal with death in this culture, our own human deaths. And this was a death much bigger. This is like, he was about 45 feet. I pump, I paced him off. So as a poet, what do you do? You write a poem. So this is, mm -hmm. you were the last whale washed up on a far beach. The waves are pushing against you, pushing against you. Your brothers and sisters are gone. The light is too bright for your eyes. You cannot breathe. Small children are throwing rocks and laughing, climbing onto your body. You die alone, your ears full of wind. You are the last buffalo. The sun is setting over the plains. You stand alone, enormous, heavy with fur, lonely. You are tired of running, tired of running. All of your friends have gone. It seems even the earth has turned against you. There is no one left to say goodbye. You rest, listening to the wind. When the time is right, the spirit of the wolf returns. So I kind of, I, I, I wanted to end that on a hopeful note, you know, because as the whales and buffalo are disappearing, I wanted to have hope that they would return, that, that we would at some point stop and stop our behavior that is causing them to disappear from the earth mm -hmm. and that gradually the wolves would come back and the bears would come back. So there is still, I mean, the natural world is so out of balance these days and primarily because of our species. Gary, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. <laughs> well, thank you. Thanks. I, I hope some of this is useful. <laughs> I don't know. You know. Yeah. I never know. I just tell stories and create the world. I create my world by yeah. telling stories. And you, yeah. I mean, you're doing a podcast. You're telling stories and creating. A, yeah. I mean, you're helping to create an, a, a view of the world. That's what stories do. You can find more of Gary's work on his poetry blog at migrations.blogspot. Dot com. That's M-Y-G-R-A-T-I-O-N-S dot blogspot dot com. Or visit the store on Main Street in Brunswick. Throughout the 2019-2020 academic year, we will be broadcasting on Brunswick's own radio station, WBOR 91.1, Mondays from 3 to 4 p.m. Each episode featuring live interviews with Brunswick and Bowdoin community members will be available after the show here on the sustainability website at bowdoin.edu slash sustainability under the Green Tea tab. 
There you can also find show notes and description of past episodes. And we're currently looking for new stories to share through the Green Tea podcast. If you've done work within the environmental realm or believe what you do for pleasure or business touches on the themes addressed within this podcast, please email Marie at mscaspar at bowden.edu. That's m-s-c-a-s-p-a-r at bowden.edu to get in touch. The music you heard in this episode is courtesy of Colby Santana of The Sustainers, who we interview in the last episode of season one. Thanks Thanks for for listening. listening.